You talk about one of the first experiences you had with politics, and it had to do with George W. Bush, uh, more specifically <laughs> with a bumper sticker that um, yeah. you sort of innocently put on the back of your 1992 Mitsubishi Expo LRV. Uh, by the <laughs> way, I, I'm, a, I'm a car geek, and I've never <laughs> I've never run into one of these before. So you might want to just mention what that is, and and, and the nickname that the vehicle also uh, <laughs> sort of took. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think I've ever seen another one in the wild. No. <laughs> sort of a smushed minivan sedan. You know, it's only got one door on the driver's side. I mean, my friends took to calling it the Mitsushitsu. This is The Full Story. I'm Tom Kuser. Three years ago, the first book by Chastin Buttigieg was published, a memoir about navigating the challenges of being young and gay in a small upper Midwestern town. His story also shares how his life was transformed from being a middle school teacher in Traverse City, Michigan, to becoming a key member of a groundbreaking and historical presidential campaign with his husband, Pete Buttigieg, who is now the U.S. Secretary of Transportation. This year, Chastin Buttigieg released a new version of his memoir, and this one is for young adults. And he joins us now on Zoom to tell us more about I Have Something to Tell You, the name of the new book. Welcome to The Full Story. Thanks so much for having me. In the introduction to your first book, you point out that the national notoriety that you achieved on the campaign trail came with a pretty big responsibility. And you write, quote, we had to get the moment right. I'm wondering, was the first version of your memoir the result of that feeling that you, you needed to get the moment right? Yeah, the first book had to be a lot of things, uh, especially in the political world. I felt like I, I had to accomplish a, a multitude of, of things. And to do it in you know a few hundred pages is really hard. This new version of the book, though, is you know, the book I wish I could travel back in time and hand myself. <laughs> I knew exactly what the mission of this one was to write the book I wish I would have had in eighth grade. So the first version of the book, you know, is it's political stories, it's peeking behind the curtain of, you know, running for president, but it's also the coming of age tale. But that that first part of the book, or I guess the first two thirds of the book is really examined in this new version, uh, what it is like to grow up in an area of the country um, where you're questioning whether or not you belong. Did you always intend to write a, a second version of this for young adults? I didn't, no. And then you know, a couple of years ago, about two years ago, the, the idea came up that this could be a really useful tool for teachers and for families. But the political climate was not the way it, it is today. And so back then, two years ago, I remember thinking, you know, well, hopefully this is a, a good tool. I taught middle school, and so I hope that it'll do some good, but I'm not really sure if folks will pay attention. And then um, here we are two years later, mm. and, and these are the kinds of books that we're banning and the books that everyone's debating and had no idea that this is the climate that the book would be coming out in. You mentioned a moment ago that it's the kind of book you would have liked to hand to your younger self. And I'll, I'll mention without sort of giving it away that uh, there's a great scene you invented in this new book where you're sitting down with your younger self explaining yeah. what's happened since then. And in that uh, description, uh, explain how your younger self responded to your older self. Uh, I'm wondering, how are young people <laughs> responding to your new book? 
Well, I've been so lucky to travel around the country the past couple of weeks. Uh, I think I've been in almost 20 cities, uh, you know, big cities, coastal cities and red states and blue states. And the thing that I'm seeing across the country is just the exhaustion in our community. Teachers are exhausted. Librarians are exhausted. Uh, parents of LGBTQ uh, kids are exhausted. And the important thing about showing up and just creating that space is not only to just talk about the book, but just to remind folks of uh, the fact that they are supported, to remind young people that they are loved, that there are millions of people out here fighting for them, who support them. Some of the most profound conversations are happening during the audience Q&A portions of these book events, talking with folks who are either on the front lines of some of these uh, draconian anti-LGBTQ bills or parents who are just trying to figure out how to love and support their kid, you know, in a time when uh, folks in positions of political power are spending the majority of their time debating the dignity of LGBTQ people. So I really enjoy getting to share this story, share uh, the space and the opportunity for folks to just, you know, breathe a little bit, even for just two hours. As you were writing this uh, this version, this uh, memoir for young adults, did it run through your mind that the book might wind up on a banned list anywhere in the country? <laughs> No, no. When I was writing it, you know, started writing it uh, before my kids were even born, and now my kids are about to turn two. I had no idea this is what we would be debating. As a dad then writing the book and as a former middle school teacher, uh, it's a completely age-appropriate book. But of course, that doesn't matter in these, uh, in these times. It's not, about, it's not necessarily about the fact that it's age-appropriate. It's the fact that it features a, an LGBTQ person to begin with. So I did not think that this is what you know, politicians were going to start focusing on. But now that they are, I hope that this book is helpful for, for parents and for teachers uh, and for young people to know that they are part of the majority of Americans who support LGBTQ people and that, you know, someone out there is fighting for them and sees them and wants what's best for them. In the book, you share what many would consider to be an idyllic uh, Midwestern childhood. Lots of outdoor activities, <laughs> ice skating, building snow forts, uh, fishing, shooting. You did grow up around yeah. guns and learned gun safety yeah. from your dad. Uh, but you also say that you were different from the other members of your family. And you, you say that even teachers would comment to your parents about how you stood out from other students, <laughs> that you were um, special, quote. Uh, yeah. what, what was different about you? What, what do they mean by that? <laughs> special, eccentric, uh, all eccentric. of these hmm. sort, of, sort of coded words. I was a really bubbly kid. I had a lot of energy. I liked performing. And so much of my life felt like a performance, whether I was running away from myself or running away from my family and, and peers. You know, I had two sort of role models when I was growing up. By the time I was sort of in my teens, I had Ellen DeGeneres on television and I had Will and Grace. And one of the things that I sort of took from them was that if you were gay, you had to be funny. And people would be okay with your difference as long as you you know, made them comfortable and made, and made them laugh. And so I think my teachers had always seen that I had all of this bottled up energy and didn't know what to do with it. Thank goodness they pointed my parents towards community theater. You know, they, they enrolled me in theater classes and I was able to sort of run away from myself on the stage, find a place to put all that energy. But I, you know, I was in, youth group. I was in 4-H raising cows. The school I went to was uh, more rural and, you know, it's the kind of place where kids would drive their snowmobiles or their tractors to school occasionally. And I just kind of felt like I, I didn't know where I fit. And part of blending in was pretending to be that, 
you know, Christian country boy um, to find ways to sort of fit into what I thought at the time was the world's narrow view of who you were supposed to be. And if you wanted to fit in and if you wanted to belong, you had to look like and, and act like one specific type of kid. Is there a connection there between what you had to do and the acting skills that you developed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was acting from a really young age and thank goodness I took all those acting classes and was able to perform. And then I pursued theater in, in college and all of that eventually helped me to be who I am today, uh, especially on the presidential campaign. I remember being in an interview and, and someone laughed when they asked, what prepared you for this? And I said, well, I've got a degree in theater. <laughs> but uh, it's that performance and being comfortable with not only presenting yourself, but being yourself. And some of those lessons were hard learned along the way, but standing in front of a group of people, not playing a character, but being yourself. Thank goodness I had that background and, and the lessons I learned along the way to prepare me for for who I am and where I'm at today. You talk about one of the first experiences you had with politics, and it had to do with George W. Bush, uh, more specifically <laughs> with a bumper sticker that um, yeah. you sort of innocently put on the uh, on the back of your 1992 Mitsubishi Expo LRV. Uh, by the <laughs> way, I, I'm, a, I'm a car geek, and I've never <laughs> I've never run into one of these before. So you might want to just mention what that is and and, and the nickname that the vehicle also uh, <laughs> sort of took. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen another one in the wild, no. <laughs> sort of a smushed minivan sedan. You know, it's only got one door on the driver's side. Um, and my friends took to calling it the Mitsushitsu uh, <laughs> in college. Um, but yeah, my I the George Bush came through Traverse City, Michigan on his reelection campaign. And at that time, I wasn't really, a, you know, politically astute kid. I wanted to see the president. Everyone in my, you know, 4-H group or church group or just in my immediate surroundings was supporting the president. And putting a bumper sticker on my car felt like a very easy way to signal to the other kids, especially, you know, the the teenage boys I was running away from and trying to avoid in the hallways, that I was just like them, that I was one of them and they didn't have to worry about me. Um, and it was it had nothing to do with politics. It was, I thought at the time, just a way to signal to the peers that I was most afraid of, that I was actually one of them. I wasn't that different because the difference, especially the one big secret I was trying to hide, felt like the one thing that was you know, going to get me hurt was the thing that I was constantly getting you know, shoved into the locker and being accused of. And I thought that just signaling that I was at least politically like them would keep me safe. In reading this, it's obvious to anyone, I think, that you had some very, very difficult times getting through school and surviving various incidents connected with your being different, as some mm. folks pointed out. And you also mentioned, quoting here, it was more important for me to protect myself than to live authentically, finding ways to survive in an environment that, that didn't fit you. What, what did that mean? Well, you couldn't be gay. Um, we didn't talk about gay people and the thing that I was hiding, I also didn't know that it was okay to be, we didn't really talk about gay people. And the only thing that I was ever hearing about gay people was the slur or the accusations. And, uh, I'll never forget, uh, in church group being told that, uh, homosexuals were demonic and sent by the devil to corrupt, you know, the world and thinking, well, that can't be right. And it wasn't until I was 18 when I was studying abroad in Germany, actually making a friend who 
who helps me understand that the thing that I was I was hiding wasn't wrong at all. And I didn't even have the language to really describe how I felt because I had spent 18 years of my life feeling like something was wrong. That uh, you know, I write about feeling like something was twisted in my DNA. You know, I I, I did not know that it was just simply a fact of life and something I couldn't control. And I spent 18 years of my life trying to hide it and trying to be what I thought everyone wanted me to be. So I leaned into 4-H, you know, I tried to be the best cowboy and, you know, wear all the right clothes and do the right things and blend in with the right groups to just protect myself. I, I write in the book about how Matthew Shepard, his murder shaped a lot for me. And I was almost 10, I think it was nine or 10. Yeah. When he was murdered and remember thinking, well, you know, they tied him up to a fence post and left him for dead. And I was growing up around a lot of pickup trucks and fence posts. And I just knew that I had to hide that to protect myself. We should point out, uh, we're not talking about something that occurred in the 1950s or, or something. This is the 90s and into the 2000s. So not yeah. that long ago. But that's also still true today, isn't it? I mean, yeah. of course, we've seen tremendous progress. But that doesn't mean everything got better. And there are still young people in this country, even older people in this country today, who cannot live an authentic life because of either politics um, or the, just the simple fact that there are still corners of this country where it is unsafe to be LGBTQ. You, you share, as you pointed out in the book, how challenging it was to evolve into being your authentic, living your authentic self. Do you hope that sharing your experience might ease the way for young people today who are seeking their authentic self? And we're probably not talking only about sexual orientation. Yeah, well, school's hard in general, you know. It's, uh, it's even harder if you're, uh, if you're queer. So uh, I hope that this book is, you know, it provides the necessary windows or mirrors that uh, a young person might be able to see themselves reflected in the stories in the book, to know that someone's been there, someone's gone through it has questioned a lot of the things that they might be questioning. Will I ever fall in love? Will I ever have a family? Is it okay to be myself? Will I ever find community? Are people actually fighting for me? And for other folks who might not identify as LGBTQ, especially their parents or teachers and peers to see, you know, to offer a window into the world of somebody who's navigating this world and country, wondering whether or not people will love them or support them or accept them. And these are the necessary conversations that we need to be having right now in our families um, I think parents especially have to have that easy, simple 10-second conversation with their kids and remind them that they are loved unconditionally because we never had that when I was a kid. We just we didn't talk about that. And um, I hope that the text of the book and the reflection questions in the book will help guide some of those conversations and hopefully make things just a little bit easier for folks. You write in the book, once you decided to come out, so to speak, you're coming out to friends and family, and in your mind, it meant really risking losing the people you loved when, when you did explain to them who you were authentically. Yeah, because we didn't have that conversation I just mentioned. You know, we didn't mm -hmm. talk about queer people. My parents were very loving, giving people, but I was also growing up in a time when the only things I was hearing about LGBTQ people were that, you know, they were either destined for, for doom or hell or you know, that something was wrong and twisted. And my parents never told me that I was okay to be myself. And I love sharing their story 
on the book tour and in the book because I ran away from them uh, when I came out. The summer I turned 18, graduated from high school. I wrote them a letter terrified that I was going to be the biggest embarrassment to our family. And I remember apologizing. Um, and then I just ran. But my parents eventually called me back home because they cared more about my safety and keeping me alive than the opinions of other people, even their friends or their church or their immediate community. And I love sharing their story, progress and redemption uh, and love and a commitment to family and loving your child and keeping them alive versus the opinions of other people. An interesting point that you make in the book when you talk about getting bullied for your name and uh, you, you you let readers know that they have a right to be respected, and that starts with respecting themselves by making sure people say their name properly. And, and I must say, I've never read a book before where the author uh, makes a point of explaining exactly how their name is pronounced. Uh, much appreciated, <laughs> by the way, uh, but that that's yeah. something very unusual. Well, I think so many of the little anecdotes in the book come from my experience as a teacher. You know, when you're a young kid and you're, especially when I was trying to, you know, blend in and sort of hide from some of my peers, and then you have a really unique name. It was just another way for kids to poke fun at you. And so making sure that you're doing the simplest things of, you know, acknowledging the pronunciation of someone's name and trying to get that right just lets them know that they are welcome and supported in that community. What do you think about school curriculums, including programs that are a bit more specific about mental health and self-respect. Is there a place for that? Oh, absolutely. There should be a place for that. Uh, so much of the data that we see right now is alarming, uh, especially amongst LGBTQ youth. But mental health data across the board for all youth should be prompting all of us, especially adults, people in positions of power, to make sure that we're getting this moment right. It's hard to be a kid. It's hard to be a teenager in general. And then when you layer on um, you know, things that make you different um, and that politicians are, you know, debating your humanity and making sure that it's harder, not easier to be your most authentic self. That's scary. And, you know, as as parents, the thing that we care about the most is doing right by our child. And as a teacher, the thing I cared about the most was just making sure that these kids were OK. And of course, we should have conversations about what it's like to navigate these spaces in general, what it's like to go through school and the world when you're trying to fit in, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to figure out who to be, what you want to be. And I, I really appreciate the evolution of the conversation of mental health in our country. Uh, I've talked about my own journey with mental health and um, how good therapy was for me after I came out in college and how it is today. Just navigating a you know, the space as a, an openly queer person in a very prominent role, these things are really helpful and uh, we should want what's best for our kids. And I think having simple conversations about making sure that they're okay and they know they're supported is, um, is a great thing to have. You moved back to Traverse City with your young family. Uh, in an article in Politico, the Washington, D.C.-based newspaper that focuses on politics, you described your hometown has, quote, caught up with you. Uh, you feel comfortable <laughs> and, and safe making a home there uh, with, with your husband and children. Are you concerned at all that this charged political climate could change that, could affect that feeling? That's why I want to be there. 
And I know that not everyone in Northern Michigan feels that way, but I want to be part of that change. And I love seeing my hometown progress. And the fact that more families feel comfortable moving there is a sign of progress. But I don't like running away from a fight. And I love the fact that my family now gets to be part of the change. Um, and some of that change is just existing you and talk, being visible. You talked at one point in the book about um, a need to to get out of your hometown, to get out into the world, to leave all that behind. Mm-hmm. You're moving back to Traverse City. Seems like something of a full circle completed. Yeah. Well, when I was growing up there, I couldn't see Northern Michigan for the beauty that it was. The only thing I could see was a world that wasn't ready for me yet. And I thought the way to survive that was to get as far away from it as possible. That's where the majority of my family is. You know, that's where our kids' grandparents live. And now I can also see all of the things that make Northern Michigan, I think, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I can appreciate that and I want to be part of it. But yeah, when I was younger, I I couldn't see, you know, the beautiful Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore and the crystal blue waters and the, you know, all of the the beautiful nature that awaited me and, and the food and the people, you know, none of that I could recognize. It was just, I need to get as far away from these people as possible. Chastin Buttigieg, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking about uh, your, your new memoir. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and happy Pride. Thank you. Same to you. You can learn more about Chastin Buttigieg and his memoir, I Have Something to Tell You, for Young Adults, this Friday at the Ridgefield Playhouse. He'll be in conversation with actor and author Harvey Firestein and theater, TV, and film producer Richie Jackson. You can find out about tickets and more about the events at our website, WSHU.org. Ann Lopez is our senior producer in charge of all this stuff on the other side of the glass there. Anne has one more question before you go. <laughs> Hello. As an educator, how would you have schools deal with the fact that they're trying to remove certain books and ideas and close off students from certain ideas and books? How should schools manage that? Well, I think the first thing that we have to consider is whether or not we believe LGBTQ people are equal members of society. And I believe they are. And I think so much of this this moment around uh, LGBTQ people, stories about LGBTQ people being guised as parental rights is just a way to demonize an already vulnerable population. But it's also just a really easy thing to do politically. The other side of the aisle has admitted this, that they threw everything at the wall and they wanted to see what would stick. And right now it's attacking the queer community, specifically trans youth. And it's not necessarily about education. It's just about using a population that's helpful for them. And I believe that LGBTQ people are equal members of society and worthy of community and acceptance. And some of the conversations you see at a places like Florida, teachers not even sure if they can have a picture of their wife or their husband or if they can even acknowledge the fact that they have a family that is the kind of fear in these bills that they want because i do believe that some of these people they really do want to try to push the lgbtq community back into the closet as a teacher you know when the conversation comes around parental involvement i always wanted more parental involvement i 
I, I remember during parent-teacher conferences and sometimes only one or two families would come. As a, as a parent, you're always in control. You, you have a voice and you have an opinion that you should absolutely share. But right now, I think so much of the conversation is getting far removed from what's actually happening. Not just as a teacher, but as a parent, I want my kid to grow up in a world where we value everyone equally. And I am not threatened by the fact that some families are different or that some people love different or look different. I want my kids to grow up in an empathetic and kind world. I want them to be curious and kind and to understand that it's okay to be different. But at the root of so much of this nonsense is just folks using a vulnerable population for political ambition and money and power. And I know a lot of people around the country exhausted with that. And so I'm, I'm happy to continue having this conversation as I tour the country with this book and meet with local LGBTQ leaders and families and, and just remind folks of what's truly at stake and to remind folks that now is a season for active allyship as well, that we have to put our allyship into action. You might have to go to a city council meeting. They're not all terrible. Uh, but, you know, school board meetings, you might have to vote a little more. You might have to march a little more. You might have to call your elected official a little more and remind them that the majority of Americans support LGBTQ people. And we're also uh, a little exhausted that they're focusing on a very, very small portion of the population and not actual problems that need solving. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Again, thank you so much for your time today and good luck uh, with the rest of the tour. Thank you so much. 